Welcome to the third episode of Coronavirus The Truth, a new podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions, and with me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful, fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What should our listeners know about the week that was? What's interesting about the week that was included a combination of the totally predictable and the very random. Our, our country often vacillates between ignoring dangers and then panicking. And that's what I believe that we saw in the week that just concluded. You may remember, Jeremy, we started this podcast two weeks ago. And we predicted at that time that the number of cases and deaths would double every two and a half to three days. And that's exactly what has happened. Of course, it was not a prediction on our part. It was simply the biology of the virus. This is what's called r naught, which is how frequently does the virus get spread from one person to another? Two and a half to three days is what we learned from the Chinese and European experience. And that's exactly what we've seen when there has not been any success at keeping people apart to slow down that transmission. You may remember we saw 80 deaths two weeks ago, and now the numbers are around 2,000, which is exactly the four to five doublings that we would have predicted. You know, yesterday in the news, Anthony Fauci predicted 100,000 deaths, and there are headlines across all of the journals and the newspapers and social media. There's no reason to have ever thought there'd be fewer than 100,000. Remember, the flu has somewhere between 40 and 50,000 each year, and this virus is definitely going to be at least twice as lethal. So why should we think there'd be fewer than that? In fact, more likely, it'll be close to 200,000. Not because of anything that is that different about this virus, except this lethality, but because it's behaving like every virus that gets transmitted from person to person until there is immunity. I see in newspapers words like surging numbers of cases and spiking death totals. That's nothing that is either surging or spiking. It's exactly what is predicted. What we're seeing in the numbers today is what happened a month ago. Remember, it takes 
almost a week to get sick, and then you're sick for a week, and you're hospitalized for a week, and you're in the ICU, and finally you die. It's about a month, and we did not start social distancing till about two weeks ago. The problem that I see, Jeremy, is that the human mind is not used to exponential increases. We're used to arithmetic, one to two to three. This is two to four to eight to 16. Our minds can't see it, but that's how viruses work. It's what we've seen. And I think one of the most interesting parts this week is what happened in Louisiana. There was some evidence that this virus might slow slightly in higher temperature areas. We saw far more cases in places like New York than we saw in the South and in Texas. And we assumed that this was something about the virus. So ask yourself, why is Louisiana now the place in the entire world with the highest death rate? And the answer, Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras happened the end of February, a full month ago. Everyone was on top of everyone else. And you saw this rapid transmission of disease. And people should think about that when later in the show we talk about social distancing. If people are on top of each other, we will see a huge spike in the cases happening very quickly with many, many deaths happening in a short time period. And it is why experts are still telling us the best approach is going to be to slow down the process of transmission and the so-called flattening of the curve. Robbie, the president yesterday extended the stay-at-home and social distancing recommendations for another 30 days till the end of April. Is this timeline to be believed or is this just being extended incrementally to prevent unrest and panic? Jeremy, we call our show Coronavirus the Truth because that's what we want listeners to have. Here are the facts. This virus, if there is no social distancing, will become twice as prevalent every three days. What we will see is that a certain number of people will become very sick as a consequence, require hospitalization. Some of them will go on to the ICU and ventilators, and some will die. All of these numbers are beyond what we can do medically. This is a virus that the human body has not yet seen. It will spread if that virus goes from one person's nose and mouth to another person's nose and mouth, whether it happens through the hand touching the nose or mouth and then touching a doorknob or the person sneezing or coughing. Amongst those people who get it, what we know is that some are, have very minimal symptoms, but a certain percentage of them will go on to become very sick. And somewhere around a half of 1% to 1% of people will ultimately die. Any time that we pick over the next four to six to eight months 
is not a question of the virus somehow magically dying out. It's a decision that we're making about the willingness as a society to allow the number of cases to spike and potentially overwhelm the healthcare facilities. Until there's a vaccine, because we have not been able to contain the virus, by which I mean to find people who have it early and quarantine them. So until there's a vaccine, this virus will continue to spread person to person to person to person. Possibly, of course, when the summer comes, it will slow down. We don't know that yet. Conceivably, the virus could mutate to a less virulent strain. But the most likely scenario is that this person-to-person contact will happen until approximately half of the population has had this virus and developed the immunity. We will not be at half in April or May and probably not in June. So the question becomes, when do we want to allow, and by that I don't mean legislatively, I mean biologically allow a spike to happen. We can predict that if we take the gloves off of social distancing, we allow people to congregate once again, we open up schools and offices, that we will go back to a transmission rate where each individual infects somewhere between two and three other people, And that, again, goes exponentially. So the president, actually not the president, because most of the decisions are made by the governors and the mayors and other people responsible in the states and in the cities. But if the individuals driving the social distancing from the political arena, if the businesses of the country start bringing workers back, The spike in incidents will happen. The only way to prevent that is a vaccine, which we don't have, a medication that we don't have, or a few enough cases that we can quarantine people, isolate them from everyone else, and then allow the virus to die out. We are so far away from being able to accomplish that we should not even be talking about it at this particular time period. Do you think in 30 days or so from now, we'll start to have seen some of the effects of social distancing or the virus be spreading so fast that, I mean, to the to the lay person, they won't even know the difference? And what do you think uh, in 30 days, if you had your crystal ball, what do you think in 30 days things will look like for good and for bad? What listeners have to understand is that we are already seeing the positive side of social distancing. But if they think that means that we're going to see fewer cases and declining deaths, they are not understanding the exponential nature of the virus spread and the impact that it will have on human life, regardless of the treatment, because we don't have a very effective one at this particular time period. Why do I say it's working? Because we see in New York City that the number of cases is doubling every four days, not every two and a half to three. Now, that may not sound like very much, but remember, 
if you're going to be doubling, let's say, every three and a half days, just to make the numbers easy, all right, you go from two to four to eight to 16 over two weeks. If you spread that out over a week, you go from two to four. Massive difference in numbers. The impact of that is the demand on the hospitals, the number of people needing critical care, the number of people needing ventilators, and as a consequence of that, not the number of people dying from the virus, because that has to do with the lethality of the disease, but dying because we can't provide the care that might have saved their lives simply because the demand for that care exceeds the capacity in terms of numbers of doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, ventilators, hospital critical care units. As a result of that, what we will see at 30 days from now is not the virus disappearing. It doesn't go away, and I keep going to go back to this theme, until you have a vaccine, which we don't have, until you can reduce the number of people with the disease, with the virus, with the infection, so far that you can quarantine all the people who have the remaining virus, and then you've got to close your borders for people coming in from other countries who might have the virus. It can be done. We're way past that point. There are so many people in the United States, probably right now in the millions, there's no way that we can contain that virus. And finally, the last way is it disappears because you have herd immunity. What that means is that so many people have had the virus that now have the antibodies against it, that the virus can't find a population to infect. A month from now, we will be nowhere near half of the population having had the virus and as a result, whenever we take off the constraints that exist, we will see a spike. How high that spike will be, how full our critical care units will be, how much capacity we will have, that's going to be the deciding factor. But listening to anyone talking about a date in the next month or two or three and believing that what that means is that the virus is going to be gone just doesn't understand the biology. This virus will stay in the United States until we either have a vaccine, which is a year from now, or until enough people have had the disease, which is probably around half the population, maybe a little bit less, more likely a little bit more. As a business owner, I'm getting more and more worried about the economy. I'm hearing that from a lot of people. Obviously, I value human life and I don't want people to die and I don't want our healthcare system to be overrun. But if we continue to see uh, one month more, and like you said, very probably beyond that of social isolation, this is going to have some very serious repercussions um, beyond the virus. It, it lost jobs, businesses that will likely never reopen. Um, this will have a very serious ripple effect on the economy the longer this goes on. In addition to that, uh, the pork-filled stimulus package has us borrowing against our, our, ourselves in the future. Uh, this in itself could 
have very negative impacts on uh, the health of the public, um, loneliness, depression, suicide, fear, potential increases in crime and more. Um, what are your thoughts on the effects of this on the social determinants of health? And also, is there a good middle ground economically and health-wise? Jeremy, you're asking all of the right questions. And these are ones that no one really likes to talk about. And so many people right now today are talking around it. But you're asking the exact questions that need to be discussed. And these are ethical and these are moral. On one hand, you have the consequences of increasing social interaction, allowing the businesses to reopen the restaurants that have been hit very hard. You allow the businesses to bring back workers with the goal of increasing productivity. You create a more vibrant local business so that the small business owners have the revenue that they need to stay in existence. And when you do all those things, you increase the number of infections in terms of the rapidity and you risk, or in some cases you guarantee that you're going to exceed the, the ability of the hospitals to provide the care. And as a consequence of that, you have people who will die who otherwise could have lived. Some people talk about in private. I have not heard them talking about it publicly, but I know they're having this conversation that says, no, we're actually creating more health problems as a consequence of keeping people socially isolated and threatening their financial viability. I was talking to a person two days ago. She drives a bus for the school. She was laid off. She'll be able to get unemployment insurance. The totality of the unemployment insurance doesn't cover the rent to say nothing about food and clothes for her children. She has no idea what she's going to be able to do. And imagine if there were vital medicines that the family took that could no longer be afforded. Imagine if we were in the midst of a very harsh winter. These are the kinds of realities that our nation is not talking about. I think people would like to believe that if we just wait a short amount of time, this virus will disappear. That's not the truth. This virus is going to persist for a long time unless we allow a lot of people to become sick very quickly. So we are stuck in the middle. We might not be as bad had we a month ago started producing the machines, the respirators to care for people, the protective gear that doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists 
require we relate to the game. We might not be here if two months ago we had started developing the testing kits that would be necessary and tested people very early in the process and quarantined them. That's what happened in other countries. We might not be here if we were a different country like China and could have imposed the kinds of mandatory restrictions on individuals to allow the number of cases to have shrunk down as it did in China and then quarantine people. But we didn't do any of those things. And so right now, as you've pointed out, we're sitting at a point where we don't have any good choices. And to believe that somehow social distancing is going to make this virus disappear, it's unconnected with each other. The virus will not disappear as long as there are people around or enough people around who have not yet had it. It will not disappear until there's a vaccine that can prevent it. That's a long time into the future. And how we resolve the economics against the biology, the ethics, the morality, that is going to be a crucial conversation that our nation, and I'll say unfortunately, is only beginning To go back to your point, though, about the so-called stimulus package, it was not a stimulus package. I want listeners to understand that. We're going to see probably two more economic packages coming out of Congress that will be designed to stimulate the economy once we're ready to move forward. This was a package designed to protect people like that woman bus driver I described who finds themselves in a no-win possible situation, and through that stimulus package, it will give them enough money to be able to keep their lives afloat. It will be enough money to help companies that otherwise would go bankrupt and out of business afloat. It will be enough money to be able to encourage companies to continue to pay their employees and allow them to continue to have a life, but a stimulus package to re-energize the economy, to bring down that unemployment rate, that is not yet through Congress. And so the dollars we're talking about are far more than the $2 trillion, the $2.2 trillion that Congress passed and the president signed last week. You talked about the bus driver. I know a lot of people in similar situations who I think going month to month to month living on these checks from the government, um, there's a lot of uh, Americans who are very proud in the work they do. You know, we have that feeling of invincibility. I- I'm very concerned about how uh, that's going to affect people long term just living on those government checks no social interaction, like we talked about with the social determinants of health. And I've seen all over social media people saying, okay, I'll give it another 30 days, but then I'm going back to like as normal. I can't take it anymore. I've seen that all over the place. Um, And then the other thing I've seen is uh, a goalpost that people keep asking about is 
football. Football is, there's nothing like it in America in terms of the social interaction and college towns and, and even pro towns, the tailgating, you know, the bringing of people together, um, watching games either in the stadium or at home. Uh, a lot of people are like, are we going to have football this year? And then that even makes me think about people that lived through the depression and people that lived through world war two or even the Holocaust, uh, they, they have had lasting um, impacts on their, their psyche from that. You know, people that lived through depression were lived the rest of their life being extremely stingy, a lot of them, even if um, they then became financially successful later on. Do you think what we're going through now, even if football and, and things like that happen in the fall, that people are going to be uh, scared to do these big group gatherings again? I heard someone refer to... The individuals growing up now, as in quotes, the C generation, meaning the letter C for coronavirus or COVID-19. There is no question that this will this series of events will echo for a long time into the future. We know that you can trace a variety of social determinants of health, not just in that individual, but in their children and the other ch- and children of the third generation. No question what you're saying, Jeremy. This is going to have major long-term psychological problems. As you know, I don't like to use war analogies in healthcare. I think that healthcare should be about empathy and, and compassion. But in this case, I think war is the right word. We are in a war. And after war, there's a lot of post-traumatic problems that individuals experience for the rest of their lives. I can't imagine that we will not be able to find consequences for decades into the future. At the same time, as a physician, the idea of making a determination long-term that will mean that in the short term, we overflow our hospitals and lead to people dying, not from the virus. They're going to die from the virus, as I've said, either way, but dying because we don't have the capacity, the capacity to put them on a respirator. People are talking about putting two patients on the same respirator, something that's unimaginable before two or three weeks ago. We're talking about people who are having heart attacks who can't get to the hospital in time. We're talking about a lot of individuals who will lose their life prematurely because we allowed the virus to spike by shrinking down the the emphasis, by eliminating the emphasis on keeping social distance. This is an impossible situation. You know, the classic piece of literature, Sophie's Choice, which of the two children does she keep alive? You know, what do we do? Do we deal with the lives they'll be lost now or the lives they'll be lost later? Your analogy to the world wars, remember they lasted four years. This won't be that long, but I think that the consequences 
the generational consequences, the economic consequences, the psychological, the sociological will be there. I'll say the good part is that people are starting to come to grips with what is not only happening, but will happen not in a prediction model, but in a definitive form. The increasing numbers of individuals who will die, the economic consequences that we'll have, these are not theoretical. These are definitive and we can map it out for the next several months. And at the same time, they're coming to grips with the fact that we're relatively helpless to do very much about what is going on today, except to slow it down, which means that it will elongate it so as to avoid the kinds of spikes that will happen that will simply be horrific. I mean, imagine the pictures of people lining up and dying because they simply can't get a bed in the hospital or a bed in the ICU or people dying from lack of oxygen because there is no breathing machine available to put them on. This is something that is a true tragedy. And what has me very angry is how slowly we recognized it, the things we could have done to have avoided it, but that horse is out of the barn. And now all we can do is the best that's possible and make the decisions together about which is going to be worse for people. The definitive difficulties that will happen short-term if we take away the social distancing against the probable difficulties that people will experience financially, psychologically, socially, if we don't do that. What's being done in, in, in terms of, is there anything being done in terms of antibody testing to test um, you know, you know, a massive amount of people in terms of, okay, you've already had it, you're fine. Uh, and then two, using them as a, I, I know there's being some studies done and stuff on blood transfusions of people with antibodies to critically ill patients like we did in, in even 1918 with the Spanish flu. Kind of, Do you have an update on that front on both the testing for antibodies and how well the blood transfusions are going and the, and the case studies are doing? Great question, Jeremy. Listeners have to understand that there are two different tests that can be provided to people. The first one is to test for active disease. This is the one we've been talking about that should have been done a long time ago, where the CDC limited the ability of universities and private laboratories to come up with the tests. Now that is starting to happen. These are the nasal swabs that are taken on individuals who are having symptoms and determining whether they have the COVID-19 virus. These particular tests look for fragments of what's called the RNA, the genetic material inside the virus, genetic material that's not found in humans. And when they can find those pieces of the RNA, sort of in a lock and key kind of fashion, they create the key to see if it fits inside the lock, 
matching the two together. Then they make the positive diagnosis. We quarantine the person. So the purpose of that testing is to figure out who has the disease so that we can intensely keep them away from everyone else, people in their family, friends, everyone else, because they are contagious. Once you recover, and we're not 100% sure about the immunity, but essentially every other virus, once you've recovered from it, you have antibodies against it that provide an immunity that can last in some cases for a year, the common cold being an example of that, three years, or life. Each virus is somewhat different. It also depends upon whether the virus mutates. But the point being that if you've recovered, now that test that looking for that little piece of RNA fragment, it doesn't, it's negative. And now what you need to look for are the antibodies that the person's body has produced to tell you they've had the virus. Now, why is that important? First of all, it's important so that we understand this disease. We still really don't know how many people have had COVID-19. We estimated somewhere between five and 10 times the number of positive tests, but we're seeing a significant number of individuals who have subclinical cases, who think they only have a mild cold, some actually only having a change in smell and taste, some very mild cases. And by doing serologic testing, testing for the antibodies, we could now determine whether for every patient who has a positive COVID-19 test, there are five or 10 or 20 or 30 people. We just don't know how many people have already been exposed and are protected. And that's vital for a couple of reasons. Number one, it tells us something about the mortality. Because mortality is the number of deaths divided by the number of people who have had the disease. And if you don't know the right number of people who have had the disease, there's no way to be sure the overall mortality. And that's very helpful for planning, particularly for hospitals, critical care units, respirators. That's why there's so much disagreement about how many respirators we need. We know it's a lot more than today, but we can't be sure because we don't understand this factor, which is how many people go on to develop severe disease based upon how many people have the virus. And the other part is it answers many of the questions that you've been asking. If we say that the end of this pandemic, or at least the end of the pandemic in the United States, will only happen when there is what's called herd immunity, enough people who already are resistant to the virus, and we estimate that to be somewhere around half of the population, then the only way we're going to know that we're essentially at half the population is by having done this serologic testing. We can assume it based upon the change in curves of incidence and death, but the serologic testing is the way to go. In the short term, we need to focus on the question or focus on the short term. We need to focus on the shortage of tests to identify who has the disease 
so that we can quarantine those individuals and prevent spread. But in the longer term, we need to understand how many people have had the disease and what's happening going forward. This has been a great conversation, Jeremy. I think that we've covered a huge amount of material. I'm hopeful that our listeners will understand now more about the biology and the mathematics, that what's going on right now is not surprising. It is predictable. What's going to happen in the future? There's going to be a combination of the biology and the mathematics and the ethics and the morality. We're going to have to make some decisions about slowing down the transmission through social distancing or minimizing that degree of restriction to allow more people to have the disease and to allow this problem to end sooner, not because we've yet developed the vaccine or the medication, but because there is herd immunity with enough individuals having already experienced the virus that it will not have enough sources to infect and it will slowly disappear. I agree, Robbie. Thank you for the great discussion. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like this show, please rate it five stars, share it with your friends and family, and leave a review. Uh, to submit a question or comments to the host, visit our contact page on our website, or send us messages on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you very much for listening.